So if you have a Bible, we are going to start in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. We started a couple weeks ago looking at some different characters out of the Bible. So we looked at, um, there's going to be about 30 or so total characters that we're going to look at. We looked at Adam, we looked at Eve. Tonight we're going to look at Noah. Um, Next Wednesday night, Lord willing, we're going to look at Abram or Abraham, depending on how you want to title him. But the idea that when we come to some of these characters in the Bible, we're asking three primary questions. We're asking, who were they? Why do we know them? And what lessons do they teach us? So, we just spent over a year going book by book through the entire Bible, trying to think about what is it, what is the relevancy for us, what is it about, who was it written to, who was written by, when was it written. Um, But the same thing, not only is God's Word very instructive and formative of our lives, but there's also characters that God has given us as models, as examples, characters that He's given us um, so that we can learn how God relates to people and how people relate to God. Because there isn't a whole lot today that is new in the span of history. So we go back and we look at some of these characters. Um, I've got this at my house, at Jenny and I's house. I've got one there, and then I've got another one up here at the church that I haven't put it up for tonight, but I'm not going to let these teenagers get a hold of it. And it's something that you might be interested in. It starts with Adam. And then it follows chronologically all the way down through time, coming all the way over here to what is modern day 2023. And so it tracks biblical chronological times. So you can see who lived when and where they lived in the different dynasties and the different kingdoms. Um, I like to do it just because it's interesting to me to be able to track and to be able to put it together. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I get in the Bible and I see, well, this person lived this long and this person lived this long, but you don't know how they interact or, or how they um, weave together, if you will. So some of these things that might be helpful if you're interested in just kind of taking a gander at it is something that I have find that I have found fascinating, especially when you're looking at characters in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, trying to lay overlay them and see where they all lived at. So tonight we are on the character of Noah. So we come in, ask the three questions. Who was he? Why do we know him? And what lessons does he teach us? So when we think about Noah, we really get introduced to Noah right around... Genesis chapter 5, it introduces Noah there at the very end, and then Genesis 6 is where it really opens up. We uh, are given given entry or given a, a sneak peek into his life all the way through Genesis chapter 9, and then 10, it talks about the descendants, and then chapter 11, the story goes on, and Noah is left to the pages of history. But Noah was a very significant person. For us. Very significant person for us. So, let's ask the question. Who was Noah? What do we know about Noah? I'm not talking about what he did. I'm talking about what do we know about him as a person. He obeyed God. Okay. Alright. He lived 930 years. 930 years. Where do you get that? Okay. Chapter 5, verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. That's Adam. That's Adam. We're talking about Noah. Oh my God. That's okay. If you go to chapter 9 and verse 22, it tells you how long Noah lived. But my Bible has a different number. 
So I thought maybe I had a maybe I had a faulty copy. I'm sorry, nine, ver, chapter nine and verse twenty-eight. It's on that map too. Isn't it? it does absolutely. I have that same map. Make sure if you buy one, get the laminated one. Okay. Three hundred fifty years. No, ma'am. After the flood, three hundred. So he lived. So according to chapter nine and verse twenty-eight, he lived for nine hundred and fifty years. So well, he was. He was advanced. He was wise. He was wise. So when we think about 950 years, there's no way any of us in this room can grasp the concept of what it may be like to live 950 years. But do we have any idea where that ranks in the longest lifespans of people? So where does he rank in the total years lived historically? Okay, so you had Methuselah, and this you, you'll see this in chapter 5 and down in verse 27. In cha- it talks about Methuselah. Methuselah is, is talked about as being the person who lived the longest. And he lived, according to chapter 5 and verse 27, he lived 969 years. He was the oldest or the longest living person recorded in Scripture. Then you look up at verse 20 of chapter 5. It talks about Jared, which he was in the lineage. And it said Jared lived 962 years. So he is the second longest living person recorded in Scripture. And then you get down to Noah. So he is the third longest living person recorded. Now what I like to do, and which is why I like to look at this, is because if you think that Adam, Adam lived 930 years, I kind of wonder how much overlap. I mean, because you lived 930 years, that's a long, long time. I mean, just just think with me about this. Yeah. 930 years. If you were 930 years old today, then you were alive before Columbus discovered the Americas. You were, I mean, because you can trace this back and you can come back over in here and you can look on this map and you can go, that is back when you still had these, uh, the Ottoman Empire and you still had the kings. I mean, you figure what has happened over 930 years. I mean, you've gone from 1492 and Columbus landing there in the Americas. And that hasn't even been 930 years. And all of what has transpired in 930 years. So when you think about Noah, I find myself going, okay, so did Noah know Adam? Because wouldn't that be fascinating if Noah knew Adam? Well, the best I can cipher from this and going from Scripture is that you have Enosh, which was in the lineage of David. He lived 695 years with Adam. And Noah lived 84 years with Enosh. There is only one generation that separates Adam and Noah. In other words, Adam or Noah missed knowing Adam by only 84 years. Now you may say 84 years, that's a long time span. Not when you're talking about 900 years. Not when you're talking about that kind of a lifespan. And so it was the, the idea that when Noah is growing up, his uh, all those that were before him, most of those before him, they all were friends with Adam. And they all lived with Adam. And they could talk about the stories about when Adam was in the garden and when Adam fell and when Adam was cast out. Can you imagine the stories that take place when you've lived for that long of time? I think that's that's interesting. So, 
What do we say? So who was Noah? Well, Noah was the third longest living person recorded in Scripture. What else do we know about Noah? We have to know about the animals and livestock with all those animals on the boat. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Anything else? We have to have a big shovel from the ark. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. How many kids did he have? Three sons. Three, right? So it tells us that in chapter 5 and verse 32, he had three sons. Something that I find to be interesting about that is in chapter 5 and verse 32, it says now, or it says after Noah was 500 years old, then Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. But if you look up in the preceding verses, the ones that had come before him, like Enosh lived 90 years, then he had children. Kenan lived 70 years, he had children. Um, Mahe Mahe lived 65 years, he had children. Jared lived 162. Enoch lived 65. Methuselah lived 187. So all these people that had come before him, they had had children at a much younger age and then Noah comes along and the Bible doesn't tell us. I, I can't tell you, well this is why or this is, the, this is a secret. I just think it's interesting that everybody else that had come before him and that comes after him, they are much, much younger when they are having children and Noah comes along and it just says he's five years, years old and he has three boys. It doesn't mention any daughters, it just mentions he has three boys. For a man that lives 950 years, I would assume he had a greater opportunity to have children than just three. Maybe he was slow on the uptake. Maybe he was slow on the uptake. Maybe that's it. But I think that's kind of interesting when we think about who he was. What was his wife's name? Nothing? Nobody? Okay. Well, that's good because it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us what his wife's name was. Now, I, so some of you, some of you may go, "Well, I know what his wife's name was," because if you make it out there to Kentucky and you get out to the Ark, creation, whatever that Ark encounter, the Ark encounter. If you haven't been out there, you need to do that. You need to do that. Before you watch television, before you buy another stick of bubble gum, you need to get out there and you need to see the Ark Encounter. Because what they claim is it is built to scale. And you get out there and the area where you park at and you pay, you give them your billfold and five toes and three kidneys where you give them all that money. And then when we were there, you get on these buses and then they take you at a mile, mile and a half down there to where the ark is actually at. But when you're in the parking area and you can see it over there a mile, mile and a half away, that thing is a big boat. And then you get up there and you start making your way closer and closer. And you're looking around going, this is a big boat. And then you get inside the silly thing and you got layers and decks and stories. And you're going back and forth and you're going, this is a really big boat. Now they tell you when you first walk in that because of scripture doesn't give every single answer, they took artistic license to fill in the blanks. And they tell you from the very get-go, hey, We're not saying that this is all chapter and verse, but we're telling you is, is this is the best we have from all the information we have, what it might have been like. And so when you walk through, they're never trying to make the claim that it was just like this, but the idea that it could have been like that is fascinating on how it is all put together. So you get there and you're just like, this is a really big thing. Outside of the boat, there's a restaurant. Is it Landy's? 
It is not Wendy's. It is Zephorus. And Zephorus is the name they gave to Noah's wife. And so that is the restaurant outside the ark where they want you to go eat the buffet. And they had you go over there. And that's called because that is what they assigned. So when you go in there and you're walking through there, you have Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, and Noah. You have those names, but you don't have the names of the daughter-in-laws. And you don't have the names of the wives. And so they just assign them names. So if you've been to the ark, you may say, well, his, his wife's name was Zephora. No. Bible does not tell us whether it was or wasn't. Alright? So, we know he's the third oldest living human being. We know he's the father of three boys. What else do we, What else does the Bible tell us about who he was? He was the only person to find grace and God decided to... Okay, where, we get, where do you get that from? Where do you see that? Um, chapter 6, verse 8. Okay, that's right. That's right. Chapter 6, verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Then you look down in verse 9, and it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his, his generation. Generation Noah walked with God. Now some people will key on that, and they'll say, So was he sinless. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that he was sinless. The Bible said that he was blameless. And you may say, Well, that's the same thing. Well, here's the problem. The Bible also tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we're going to follow the line of thinking that he was sinless, then he and Jesus are the only two that are recorded in the Scripture have ever done that. So when it says blameless, don't get tripped up on that because you can go back and you look on, well, what is that word? That word also could be used to describe somebody without fault, somebody that is honest, somebody that is devout, somebody that has impeccable character, somebody that is unscathed. What the scripture is trying to tell us is is that compared to everybody else and in the eyes of God he had a great character a great integrity he had a great heart before the Lord it's not that God is saying he is sinless God is just saying that he was set apart and his integrity and character before God that he walked with God that's what it says in the last part of verse 9 Noah walked with God. So we ask ourselves a question, well, so who was Noah? You can have lots of different descriptions as far as like biographical of how we're going to describe Noah, but imagine if someone was going to describe you. Someone's going to say, okay, so give me the biographical sketch of who is Spence. You may say, well, you know, he's just a very, very smart person. You may say he is a very, very patient person. You may say he is a very handsome person. You may say he is a very short person. You may say a lot of different things. But how many people, when they describe you or me, how many people would say they walk with God. You know, there's a lot of things that we chase in this world that we want to be known by or we want people to think about us and we want to um, get the opinions of man and we want to have that reputation and we want to have that background. And yet, one of the, the sweetest things, one of the greatest things, one of the most important things that can ever be said about us is that we walked with God. What a, what, a, what a tremendous challenge that would be for us to live such a life that when people are describing you and I, they would describe us as God said we, had, we are honest, we are devout, impeccable character, unscathed. God would call us blameless and people would say we walked with God. 
I think that is such a high mark that we should all strive to live for, that we walked with God. Okay, so who was he? Now let's ask the question, why do we know him? Why do we know who Noah is? He built the ark. Who told him to build the ark? God, right? Alright, so you look there in chapter 6. You look there in chapter 6 and you get down to verse 13 and I find this to be incredibly fascinating. It says, and God said to Noah. So one of the reasons why we know who Noah is is because God knew who Noah was. Now we understand that God knows everybody. God knows every single person. But you know, God doesn't speak to just everybody. God doesn't commune with just Everybody. And the fact that you've got this guy living, and it tells you there at the very first part of chapter 6, for chapter 6, um, uh, all the way down through verse 8, it talks about the wickedness. In fact, it says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So God is looking around, and he is seeing wickedness, and sin, and rebellion, and debauchery, and all kinds of disobedience and unfaithfulness and all these things are going around and then here comes Noah in verse 9 and verse 10 and you get down to verse 13 and God comes and he speaks to Noah and not only did God know him but then in verse 14 we're reminded that God used him because God tells him in verse 14 make yourself an ark of gopher wood make rooms in the ark cover it inside and out with pitch and then he goes all through this description all the way down through verse 14 all way down through verse 21 gives them the description of how to build it. God said, I want you to build it so tall. I want you to build it so wide. I want you to build it so long. I want you to build it out of a certain kind of material. I want you to prepare it. This is how he he downloads all this information to him. And he tells him in verse 17, this is why you're doing it. So God knew him. God used him. And then God warned him. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. If you're Noah and God tells you He's going to bring a flood on the earth, does that make sense to you? Why? It hadn't rained. Now, we don't know exactly because the Bible doesn't say it had not rained. But if you go back there to Genesis chapter 2, it gives us the description that there was a mist that was coming up out of the ground that was, that was watering the face of the earth. And so many Bible scholars, that's right, many Bible scholars believe that up until this point, it had not rained. That there was some type of a high hydration method. In fact, some people, um, scientists and Bible scholars have gone back to try to describe how people lived so long. It was because they were shielded from the radiation and because of the atmosphere and because of the humidity and all these factors let people live longer. They've tried to come up with all these reasons and explanations for that going on. But we have a lot of good reason to assume that up until this point it hadn't rained and if it hasn't rained it hasn't flooded. So you are Noah and God says hey I want you to build a boat because I'm going to bring a flood and can you imagine Noah going what is a flood? (laughs) And how are you going to bring a flood? And God says, well, it's going to rain. <laughs> What's rain? Well, it's when water falls out of the sky. I, 
Can you just imagine the, 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 the questions that would then arise and the questions that would then come up? And then can you imagine Noah starts to work? Now, some people think that he took 120 years to build the ark. We don't actually have an exact number of, that's just kind of what we've gleaned from other passages, that it took him about 120 years to build the ark. But let's just, let's say it took 120 years, let's say it took 100 years. So Noah gets out there, he starts with his boys. And he starts building, and up comes Mr. Hurley. Spence, what are you building? I'm building an ark. What for? Because uh, God wants me and a bunch of animals get inside this ark. And then what? Uh, he's going to flood the earth. What's a flood? Well, that's when a bunch of water gets collected up and pulled up and uh, kind of covers everything we got going on. Well, how's he going to do that? Well, it's going to rain. Well, what is rain? Well, rain is when all this water is falling out of the sky and it collects up and pulls up and it starts to cover everything we got going on. Uh, Spence, are you feeling okay? <laughs> Spence, are you doing all right? Absolutely. And you take off. And, and Hurley walks away and goes, he's kind of crazy. It'll, it'll wear off. Ten years later, here comes Charles. And I'm still building this, I'm still building this boat. Charles comes up, Spence, what are you doing? I give him the whole spill. Charles goes, Spence, never rained, never flooded. How are you gonna get all these animals caught? And how are you gonna get them all in that boat? How are you gonna do that? And then let's say you get the boat built, how are you gonna test it before you have to actually use it? I don't know. Charles walks away. Harold comes up 50 years later. I'm still sitting there. And for year after year, people watched him work and work and work. And the only explanation Noah had was, is God said. You know, some of the reasons why we know who Noah is, is not just because of Noah and the ark, but Noah and his faith. So it says that not only God knew Noah, but God used Noah and God warned Noah, this is what I'm going to do. This is why you're building this. This is what is going to take place. But I find it so stinking fascinating in chapter 6 and verse 22. Look at what it says there. Three words in my translation. Maybe your translation has a little different. Noah did this. And then it goes on and it says, He did all that God commanded him. You'll find the same kind of language there in chapter 7 and verse 5. The idea that Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. So you can just imagine Noah sitting there and God says, Alright Noah, I want you to build this ark. Then you're going to gather up all these animals and you're going to get in there. This flood's going to go on and by that you'll be saved. And can you imagine Noah going, Well, I've got a list of questions. How long is this going to take? Where am I going to find enough wood? I can't. I, I wasn't there, obviously. But I have been to the one in Kentucky. And you look around and you start to think that they didn't use machinery. Nails. No nails. No nails. Tendon joints. Everything was put in there with ropes. Maybe not even ropes. I don't know what all they had. But there's a bunch of wood. And let's say, how they, how they, how they fell the tree? How they stripped the tree? How they mold the tree? Uh, we have no record that they had iron axes or anything like that in that time. In fact, the Iron Age came much later in the history of humanity. So my question is, is how do you get the tree down? How do you prepare the tree? How do you get the tree in place? How do you do all this? Because at that time, a lot of the inventions that we just take for granted, like Husqvarna, 
<laughs> and Milwaukee? <laughs> no. <laughs> they were not around. There was not a Lowe's that you were going to go down to. There was not a Bud Blakely's that you were going to go and make an order from. None of that stuff was around. And you can just imagine Noah sitting there going, God wants me to do all that. Maybe I should just go back to sleep and wake up in the morning and see if God's still saying the same thing. <laughs> Maybe long fingernails, or maybe he just says, Well, I'm going to give it six months and see if God repeats himself. It says in chapter 6 and verse 22, Noah did this. More times than I probably even realize, God has prompted my heart. The Holy Spirit has shown me something in Scripture, the Holy Spirit has brought something to my mind. I have, been con- I have been convicted or I have been prompted in my heart to do something or go somewhere or act in such a behavior or talk to a person or whatever the case may be. And when those times comes and I'm like, nah, nah, and I just deny or I disobey or I go the other direction. And yet the example that we have of Noah He did this. He did all that God commanded him. So why do we know Noah? Yes, we know Noah for what he did. Obviously, the art, all that stuff. But one of the big things that I think we often miss is that the guy started building the ark to begin with. And he started building the ark and he kept building the ark and he finished building the ark. I think it's fascinating to think that all of this happened and that he obeyed God. God had a plan. God told him what his plan was. And there was the factor of that Noah had to obey God. The same principle is still true today. God tells us His plan through His Word. God tells us why He wants us to do His plan according to His Word. And then God then wants to see if you and I will be obedient and obey Him. Not you, me, I make excuses and I make justification and I say, well, this is all the reasons why I should not feel guilty or embarrassed or ashamed to not be obedient. And then I get in places like here in Genesis and I think, you know what? If Noah could obey God, what excuse do I have? If Noah could do all that God commanded him, what excuse do I have? So why do we know Noah? Well, we know that he walked with God, but we also know him because of what God used him, told him, warned him, what he did for God. Now, that leads us into some lessons. So what lessons does he then teach us? I'm just going to assume that you've probably heard the Sunday school lesson about knowing the ark. I'm going to assume that you're at least got a familiarity with that. And so I don't want to just go through the whole, um, here comes the twos and here comes the pairs and all this stuff happened. What were some lessons? Well, over here, First Peter. Peter is writing to a group of believers. He's writing to a group of believers that are in the midst of persecution. They're in the midst of opposition. They're in the midst of just having a lot of issues. And in 2 Peter, in chapter 3, he's writing to them and he tells them, yes, you're in the midst of a bunch of lost people. And there's all kinds of opposition around you. But he makes this statement. 
since all these things, um, this is chapter 3 and verse 11. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Why do I mention this verse? Because the Bible tells us there in Genesis chapter 6, that when God looked around on creation, everyone else except for Noah and his family, were corrupt in the eyes of God. So it wasn't like Noah had a good church family that helped him out. It doesn't even give us an indication that Noah's parents were godly people. has no indication that Noah's aunts or uncles were godly people. His best friends were godly people. His classmates were godly people. His employer was godly people. The people he did business with in town were godly people. The indication that the Word of God gives us is that... Everyone else was evil in the eyes of God except for Noah. So what does Noah then teach us? Noah then teaches us that our character matters. And just like it says in 2 Peter, he asked the question, okay, in the eye in light of what God is going to do, what are you going to do with your life? So many times we sit back and we try to make excuses about, well, at least I'm better than that person, or I'm not as bad as that person. And we start to compare ourselves with other people and we start to gauge ourselves and whether I'm right or wrong good or bad based on the people around me. And we that's just a race to the bottom. What we need to be reminded is is that even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of absolute corruption, faithfulness and obedience to God is still possible. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the community is doing outside these walls. It doesn't matter what they're going to do on television. It doesn't matter how wicked and how sick and how perverted this world becomes. It doesn't matter about all of these things that you and I look at on the television. We see in the newspapers and you all see on social media. You're like, oh my gracious, how can it get so evil and how can it get so bad? None of that matters. You and I can still be faithful to God. The only person that determines your holiness before God is you. And and Noah gives us an example of how to live a life of character. The fact that everyone else was corrupt and yet Noah was found to be blameless in the eyes of the Lord. Reminds us about character. But then also he talks about, he gives us a lesson of our testimony. Going back up to verse 22 of chapter 6. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah did this. Noah gives us a lesson about the importance of our character. He gives us a lesson about the resolve of our testimony. Noah said, I'm going to do it. And he did it. God said, do it. He said, I'm going to obey God. Now sometimes... Sometimes God tells us to do things and you and I say, yep, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. God said do it. We're going to do it. And we do it for a day, or maybe a week, or maybe a month. And then we start to slip. This happens a lot around the first of the year in Bible reading. People look at January 1 and say, you know what, this is the year I'm going to read through the Bible. And they do great. They do great through January. And then February, they start to miss a couple of days. And by the time they get to March, they feel like they're four or five days behind. Oh, I just don't, I just can't catch up. And then they just stop altogether. 
find that interesting that they'll do that with the Bible, but they won't do that with TV shows. If you get behind on a TV show, you catch up, right? You get behind on a book. What do you do? You catch up, right? Somebody reads a book and they're reading so many pages a day or so many chapters a day, and then all of a sudden they miss a couple of days, and what do they do? They don't just put the book away and say, oh, who cares? No, they pick the book back up. They pick back up and they keep going. Some, of the, some people, and not just ladies, I guess guys can do it too, but whether it's crocheting or knitting or sewing, I mean, there's hobbies that all of us have, both males and females, and sometimes you may say, well, I haven't fished for the last week. Are you just going to give up fishing altogether? No. You get back out there, you get the rod, and you go fishing. And yet when it comes to the things of God, we have a tendency to just quit. And day after day, Noah got up, and he went and built a boat. The resolve to say, I am going to be faithful. I am going to pursue God. So, the boat gets built. And I'm going to look down there at chapter 7 and uh See here, verse chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now it gives us the kind of the account of how this happened. Now, one of the things you want to be mindful of when you're reading the Hebrew or reading the Old Testament specifically is when they're writing in the Hebrew language, they don't always they don't always write second by second, minute by minute chronologically. A lot of times they will go from scene to scene to scene to scene. You see an example of this in Genesis 1 and verse or in chapter 1 and chapter 2. You get this whole creation account in chapter 1, and then it's like it just starts in Genesis chapter 2. And it's like it tells you the story all over again. And in our Western eyes, we're reading and we're thinking chapter 2 chronologically comes after chapter 1. What they're doing is the Hebrew writer Moses is giving us this is the scene from this perspective, this is the scene from this perspective, and they're overlaying. So they're showing us moment by moment, not second by second. Does that make sense? So when you get here into chapter 7, some of this you may look and go, well, is this chronological? It's more of moment by moment. So God comes to Moses, or comes to Noah, and He says, get in the ark. And then in verse 7, God says, in seven days I will send rain. Verse 5, and Noah did all the Lord commanded him. So the way that I approach this is that God said, alright Noah, it's time for you to get in the ark. So Noah is like, okay, I'm going to get in the ark. And God says, you're going to get in the ark? And then it's going to be seven days later before the flood is going to happen. So Noah gets into the ark. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly because it doesn't give us a precise timeline, but you look down there in verse 16, and it says, and the Lord shut him in. So this is just play with my imagination here. So Noah gets in the ark. His family gets in the ark. I don't know if the door comes up. I don't know if the door swings in. I don't know if the door comes down. The door just appears. I don't know if it's a trap door. I don't know what kind of Dutch. Maybe it's a Dutch door. I don't know exactly how this door works. I know what it looks like in Kentucky, but I don't know how the one back in Bible times look. Okay? So you got this door, and so Noah and all his family and all the livestock get in there, and they're sitting in there, and this is how my sanctified imagination works. All the townspeople and all everybody that's looking at this lunatic Noah, they're all standing outside like, what is he going to do? He walks up in the and they're like, now what? 
And he just goes about his living. He just goes about his life living in the circuit. And everybody's on the outside going, are you going to shut the door? And he's just inside doing his thing. And hours pass. And days pass. And I can just imagine that Noah is in there and he's got his three boys and he's got his three daughter-in-laws and he's got his wife and they're all going, what's going to happen now? Um, Well, uh, God said he's going to bring the water. But you can look in chapter 7. God doesn't say he's going to shut them in. God doesn't say go in and then I'll shut the door. God just says get in the ark. So he's sitting in the ark and he's like, it's going to flood. And all these things, and you can imagine, you know, his family has got questions. You can imagine all the townspeople are out there and they're joking and they're making fun and they're jeering. And then suddenly, somewhere in the midst of this, in chapter 7 and verse 16, God shuts the door. And judgment commences. personally lean on the side that it's about six or seven days that Noah was in the ark before God shut the ark. That's where I personally lean. Can you imagine Noah sitting in the ark? Three days. Um, well, maybe I misunderstood. You know, the doubt that goes to his head, the questions that goes to his head, all of those things are there. And Noah just said, I'm going to be patient and wait on God. I heard a preacher years ago. And the whole emphasis of his sermon was on the fingernail marks on the ark. And he went off. We don't have a chapter and verse for this. So this was just his, his imagination, his thought. He said, you know, you have all these people that are sitting outside and God closes the ark. And then here comes the rain. And the people are outside and it starts to rain. And they're like, for the last 120 years, this guy said it's going to be doing this. And they start looking around. Next thing you know, it starts raining harder. It starts raining harder. Next thing you know, the water starts pulling up around their ankles. And they're like, hey, we might want to do something. Maybe we should get in the ark. But this time, the ark is sealed shut. Why? Because God shut the ark. And as they're sitting there and they're thinking, we need to get inside the ark. And they're banging on the side of the ark. And they're pleading on the side of the ark. And this water gets up to their waist. And now they're being frantic. And now they're being scared. And now the water's up to their neck. And they don't know what to do. And they're trying to claw their way to get up on top of the ark. And the preacher was talking about the fingernail marks that must have been on the outside of the ark. Of people in panic trying to get into the ark. I don't know if it happened like that. But Noah does. And you know why Noah knows how it happened? Because he was patient and he waited on God. Then, it tells you, verse 11 of chapter 7, the 600th year of Noah's life, second month, 17th day, the flood started. Now, we all probably have been in Sunday school. We know the flood lasted how many days and nights? 40 days and 40 nights. Some people start to think, okay, after 40 days and night, poof, Noah and his family got out. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. That's not the way it worked. So after 40 days and nights, the rain stopped and the waters had to subside. The waters had to subside. You know, he, leaves, he lets the raven go. He lets the dove go, right? You know all this stuff. Well, then you get down there to verse 13 of chapter 8. In the 601st year, 
in the first month. Now, their calendars in the Hebrew Old Testament time, their calendars were not exactly like our calendars today. Okay, So please do not think I'm making a one-for-one comparison. But let's just, for the sake of imagination, they were close. They, they, they were pretty similar. Okay, It wasn't a full 365 days, but it was really close. So, if you do the math, chapter 7 and verse 10, it was... Second month, 17th day, they went in, the flood started. Now it's the first month of the first, or the first, in the first month, the first day of the month. It's been 11 months that you've been in this boat. And it's a big boat. It's a big boat. But you got a lot of people. Well, not a lot of people. You got a lot of things <laughs> in that boat. <laughs> you got a lot of stuff in that boat. And I, I don't know how it worked. I don't know how much food he had. If you go to the one in Kentucky, it showed where they were growing their own food and were doing all their own stuff. I don't know how that all worked out. That would be a fascinating thing to ask Noah one day in heaven. But I can just imagine, okay, so now it's been 11 months and you've been in this boat. In the boat for 11 months. Somebody's going to want to get away from someone else after it's been 11 months. Can you just imagine... Maybe. For you ladies, spending 11 months with your mother-in-law and your father-in-law. Maybe that's why the boat was so big. Maybe that's why the boat was so big. That's right. But, I mean, 11 months and you were on this boat. I mean, I can just imagine. 11 months waiting on this boat. Then it says, verse 13, And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So here's how my sanctified imagination nation works. Okay? The ark has come to a rest. They know the ground is dried up. Somehow, Noah opened up the main door of the ark. He opened it up, and he looks out, and he sees the dry ground. And he's like, sweet! Now, if I was Noah, I'd grab a knapsack. <laughs> I'd say, I'm going to get some fresh air. <laughs> I'm leaving. So, first month, first day of the month, he opens up the, op- the, he opens up the uh, covering of the ark, looks out, dry ground. Nobody leaves. Then you get down to verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your, son- your son's wives with you. Now, if you start to do the math here, so you can just imagine January 1, he opens the covering, he sees the dry, dry ground. It's February the 27th before God finally says, you can go. How long do we wait on God? I mean, you can just imagine Noah. Noah's like, God, I did it. I built the ark. Got everybody safe. The water's gone. We're good. The opening's here. You can imagine him waking up on January the 2nd and going, God, can I leave now? And God doesn't say anything. You're like, well, maybe a no. Maybe maybe no answer is an answer. Maybe maybe that's he saying yes. Maybe, you know, uh, can you imagine? Then he wakes up on January 3rd. I sure would like to get off on this boat. I sure would like to let these animals out of here. I sure would like to get a little relief. Nothing happens. January 4th, he wakes up and he's thinking to himself, my gracious, you know what? Is God, what what's God doing? I've done everything that God asked me to do. And then, and then you start trying to play God. And you start trying to justify and excuse whatever it is that you want to do. I don't have any place recording where God said, Noah, you're going to go on the boat and you're going to be in the boat for X amount of time. 
He said, you're going to get on the boat, and you're going to be on the boat until I tell you to get off the boat. The patience of Noah. To not only get in the boat and wait for God to shut him in, wait for the waters to come on. Then, as soon as everything has subsided, he opens up the door, and I'm just throwing January 1 as just an example. He opens the door on January 1, and he waits for two months before God says you can get out. I'm willing to give God six hours, maybe. And then I'm looking for another idea. And the patience, the patience of the man, the patience that he showed, the patience that he revealed to say, hey, God said do it, I did it. God put me in here, God protected me, God brought me through. I'm not moving until God tells me to move. Patience. And then the last one, this last one. So then you get down there to chapter 9. And in verse 12. So they get out of the boat, builds an altar, makes some sacrifices. And God comes down and says, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm going to make a covenant with my creation. It says there in verse 11, Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, we know he's talking about a rainbow. Now, rainbows are cool. Scientifically, they've explained the phenomenon of a rainbow. They can scientifically recreate a rainbow in a laboratory or in a classroom and they can show how the light going through the vapors and the prisms and they can explain it scientifically. But how often do they explain it theologically? God said, when you see the rainbow, it reminds you of my promise to you. Now, I would recommend tonight that we add something to that. When we see the rainbow, it's a reminder not just of God's covenant to us, but as Noah's faithfulness before us. You see, without Noah, there would be no rainbow. It is only because Noah was obedient to God and he was faithful to God and he did what God told him and he did everything that God told him and then he got out of the boat and then he followed exactly what God said to do and then God then said, I'm going to make a covenant and I will give you a sign. So when you and I see see the rainbow, we're reminded, oh, that's God's covenant with us that he's not going to destroy us with the flood and that's good and that's true. But it's also a reminder of the faith of Noah. And it reminds us what a blessing it is that we are living in a day and age and we have had people come before us that have been models and examples of faithfulness to us. And most of us, if not all of us in this room, can think back to someone that is older than us, maybe a generation ago, that were a model and example of faithfulness to us. So who are 
we going to be a model for for the generations that follow of faithfulness and obedience to God? Maybe put another way, there's another generation that's down there in that sanctuary. And there's another generation that's up there and that upstairs. And those generations are going to be looking for a model and example of what it looks like to be faithful to God as they continue to grow and mature. And where are they going to look for that model and example? They're going to look for it in this room. And what kind of model example are we going to give them in this room for them to follow for those that come after us? So the opportunity is not just for you and I to go, you know what? Good good thing that we have Noah, so we have an example. Yeah, but you know what? Just like Noah was an example to us, we have an opportunity to be an example to other people. So when other people look to the sky and they see the rainbow, not only can be reminded about the faithfulness of Noah and the faithfulness of God, they can be also reminded about the faithfulness of the people that come before him. So Noah, it's not just a Sunday school story. Noah is a mighty pillar in the annals of Scripture of what it looks like to be faithful to God. Other ideas, thoughts, things I messed up, things I missed out?